Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. In particular, one of tonight's stories includes a brief reference to violence against an animal. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and before we jump into tonight's tales, I'd like to give you a quick update on a small change we're making to our disclaimer. As long-time listeners will know, Horror Hill has never shied away from the more intense stories that are out there. In just my time hosting the show, we featured all sorts of craven, base, and morally reprehensible content. The world of horror is a large ocean from which to fish, 
And while we absolutely enjoy featuring stories of a nuanced nature, we're also not afraid to get our hands dirty with some tasty smut from time to time. All of that being said, the last thing that we want to do is to make anyone feel like they've been blindsided by something that pulls them out of the story and makes them relive something horrific from their own past. Along those lines, we're going to be providing a bit more information during our content disclaimers. If the stories in an episode contain violence against animals, child abuse, or any violence or abuse driven by hate of a particular group of people, then I'll make mention of that in addition to our standard warning. Also, the vast majority of the stories that we cover are available to find and read online, so if you have any other content that you'd like to avoid, I encourage you to research specific stories prior to listening. Alright, now that that's out of the way, let's dig in. We have two tales for you tonight, and I can tell you, listeners, that they're both top shelf. We're beginning with The Backward Man by Caleb Stevens. In this story, we are introduced to Colin, a young boy who is about to experience a horrible tragedy. In the immediate aftermath of this terrible event, he notices a strange figure nearby, tall, dark, and turned away from him. Colin begins to see this individual with some regularity, and his appearance always foretells an impending nightmare. Who is this mysterious backward man, and what connection does he have to Colin and his family? Following that, we'll be reading From Below by Warren Benedetto. This tale opens in a near future where humanity is struggling to survive in a world with accelerated climate change. Jeremy and Alex are guiding a small boat of survivors through the now-submerged streets of New York City. As the story unfolds, we learn that the waters, and the hearts of the men above them, obscure a terrifying reality. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today and get instant access. Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. And now, from author Caleb Stevens, I give you The Backward Man. Most of my childhood memories are like charcoal drawings, the edges frayed, the images smudged and bleeding. But not this one. Not him. The first time I saw The Backward Man was when I was seven. Mom and I were at a stoplight. It was spring, a light mist blowing down, but not too cold, and I happened to glance up before the colors changed. There he was, standing on the other side of the street with his back to me, 
top hat nearly scraping the traffic light. I remember pointing him out as we crossed, spouting something like, Look, Mom, look how tall that man is. And she did look, stopping just long enough to tilt her head before the car horn blared. What happened next seared my brain like a high-voltage camera flash. This rapid snap, 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 perma-scorching my synapses. I fly into empty air. Bones crunch somewhere behind me. Metal. Asphalt bites my skin and I'm rolling. 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 Blood in my mouth. My eyes. I try to wipe it off, but my arm won't work right. My fingers are a mangled mess. Faces blur overhead, lips pull wide. A set of tobacco-soaked teeth scream, call an ambulance, and I'm bawling. Have been for some time, these huge, gulping sobs crawling up my throat. Mommy! I spot her a few feet away, her summer sundress spattered red a long grease patch down the thigh, torn. My gaze drifts higher to where the fabric strains against her abdomen, her belly tight with my baby brother, and I know, I just know, she's gone. Then I'm gazing beyond her toward the backward man, so incredibly tall. That beyond black suit and the pink splotch neck tucked beneath his ragged top hat. The thin fringe of hair there. The withered hands. Tears blurring him away. The backward man appeared every so often after that. Maybe once a year, twice. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Every time, though, it was as if he were some sort of silent, blaring alarm. This harbinger of doom that only I could see, could feel. Prickly sensations, like a swarm of centipedes racing down my legs. A heavy, tensing weight in my gut. I'd look up, and there he was. Always backwards always dressed in his tattered frock coat and black wool trousers, shoulder blades cutting sharp against the cloth, his razor blade neck climbing, climbing, finally disappearing into that threadbare top hat. Something was off about the skin beneath it. It was plastic looking, the tissue shiny moist, shining like it had been freshly coated in Vaseline. There were more car wrecks, one so bad that four teenagers died on the spot. Dad was there for that one, hustling me away, doing his best to shield my eyes with his hands. It didn't matter. I saw most of it. Flickers of broken bodies and warped metal. The backward man perched beyond the carnage and warped by heat waves. A skeleton in a suit. The image haunted me for weeks, the nightmares far longer. It went on like that, over and over, for years. The death of my sweet boxer Buck, poisoned by a loaf of bread drenched in antifreeze. 
my Aunt Debbie's breast cancer. The backward man painting a cold shadow just outside the bedroom window as Dad took the call. Uh-huh. I see. Okay, we'll be right there. I told Dad about the backward man a few times. He'd nod and pretend to listen, fingers steepled like he was paying attention. But he wasn't. Not really. I think that he chalked my stories up to trauma from Mom's death, said I'd hit my head too hard that day. That, and he was only ever half there anyways, his eyes distant and red-rimmed, vacancy sign blinking. I'm pretty sure the only things that kept him going were me and my brother. Especially my brother. At first, he had treated Jake like this fragile piece of mom he'd somehow saved. This NICU miracle draped in IV lines. A reason for him to get up in the morning. He'd say all the usual stuff as Jake grew. Tell him to put his helmet on when he rode his bike and to never ever talk to strangers to look both ways before crossing the street, but it didn't last. Mom's death had ruined him, hollowed him out, something in his gaze reminding me of a TV show bleeding static after a few drinks. So I lived like that, trapped in this awful shell watching over my brother, thinking I was nuts, scared out of my mind, until the day I realized the backward man didn't like fire. We were out in the Cascades when it happened, just me and Jake and Dad, camped next to a purple sliver of lake. The sun had nearly set, the air heavy with pine, when that familiar tingle burned up my spine. It took a moment, but I spotted him tucked away in a gray-blue strand of fur his frame more shadow than light, his torso blotting out what remained of the day. I remember staring at him, mouth dry, stomach churning, as he edged from the tree line. His knees buckled in reverse, the movement all wrong, unnatural. A sick, lumbering step. Snap. Crunch. Another. Snap crunch snap. I opened my mouth to cry out, to say anything at all, but my voice was lodged in the small part of my throat, trapped there. He drew closer, his neck crystallizing into a swirl of moist, pink-white flesh, his shoulders rolling back against his coat. So tall. Then Dad was lighting the fire, and the backward man was simply gone. Earth to Colin, Dad had said, clapping at me a moment later. You with us? And just like that, I was, staring at the crackling campfire, the crisp tinge of smoke and earth and air reminding me to breathe again. After a few wobbly breaths, I forced my gaze toward the dark expanse of trees, terrified, eyes stinging, expecting to see that pale snatch of skin again. But I didn't. He was gone, and I knew what that meant. I'd finally found a weapon. 
I bought an army of Zippos after that, carried them with me wherever I went. One flick of that magical flint, and the backward man would vanish like a groggy nightmare, like he'd never really even been there at all. But he had, and I knew it, no matter how much I tried to convince myself otherwise. We moved to Seattle when I was a freshman, Jake in third grade. Dad had landed a supervisor position at a meat packing plant in the city and thought a fresh start was what we needed, what he needed. It wasn't. All that cloud cover only drove him deeper into the bottle. Most nights, he stayed out way too late, forgot to make us breakfast in the morning or do the laundry, the basic stuff. When he stopped taking Jake to school, I knew that was it. It was on me to take care of him. I'm not going to lie. It was hard at first. I mean, we'd played together over the years, but come on, eight-year-old brother in tow everywhere I went? Not cool. Still, I bucked up and got it done. He was a good kid, bushy-tailed and all of that, with the best parts of mom, her half-curved smile and eyes like beach water. He had her humor, too, always laughing, spouting off one dumb joke after another. What do you get when you cross an elk with a rhino? It was late one night, Dad out on another one of his benders, when I decided we were due for some fun. We weren't supposed to do that, just up and leave, but I was sick of Dad's shit and Jake seemed down, so off we went. We hit up the mall, had burgers and shakes, and joked around like normal kids with normal lives, tried to not look at all the other normal kids eating dinner with their normal parents. I kept Jake distracted, taught him how to dip his fries in his shake like mom had taught me, watched him smile at the salty sweet mix, then drug him off to Laser Quest for a few rounds of laser tag. When we finally bowled into the alley a couple hours later, it was past eleven with thick sheets of fog rolling in. We were laughing about how Jake had trounced some kid in a game of air hockey, nothing remotely scary on our mind when the first cramp rolled up my leg. At first, I thought the shadow was a weird trick of the light, a distortion. Fog did that, warped things sometimes, but when the shadow straightened, I knew. I shot an arm out to stop Jake, but he'd already paused, or maybe never really moved at all. He just stood there, pale-faced, unblinking. My words came out garbled, whitewashed in fear. Jake, do, do you see him too? He didn't answer, only started to wobble straight down the alley before I could stop him. I panicked, snatched the Zippo from my pocket and bolted past him, flicking the spark wheel like a maniac until the lighter caught. I stopped and held it aloft, the blue flame crackling as my heart clogged my throat. The backward man did nothing. Just stood there facing away, top hat corked to one side, a gluey ribbon of scalp peeking out. Cold paralysis drenched my limbs, my brain, 
I started to shake as the creature's knees inverted, its elbows. Then he was backing straight for us, joints popping. I glanced at Jake, who'd stopped directly behind me, was staring right through me. I mean, straight through me, like I wasn't even there. A clear string of drool curled off his lip. I knew I had to do something, anything. Frantic, I spotted a pile of cardboard stacked next to a wall of grimy brick and rushed for it. Lit it. The fire was weak at first, the flames licking frailly at a pile of yellowed newspaper beneath the boxes until, with a wave of heat, the stiff pulp caught. When I looked up again, the backward man was gone. I only asked Jake about that night once, his forehead scrunching into a forest of lines when I did. Backwards what? I let it drop after that. If he didn't remember, that was a good thing. No need for both of us to be terrified. Still, the question triggered something in Jake that bothered me. This brief, glassy-eyed look that let me know the backward man wasn't finished, that he'd be back. I just didn't know when. It happened late one night in August. It had been unbearably hot, blankets of humidity blowing off the sound, and the AC had broken. Dad hadn't bothered to fix it, just like so many other things in the house so I'd taken to sleeping with my window open. I'm not exactly sure what woke me. Maybe it was the wind ruffling the dogwoods at the edge of our lawn, or maybe it was the moonlight washing through the blinds. Whatever it was, I snapped awake like something out of a movie. I mean, I just sat straight up in bed, sheened in sweat. There was something wrong with my stomach, and this awful smell hung in the air. Imagine an abandoned slaughterhouse in deep summer, miles of spoiled meat. Worse than that. I bolted to my feet and crept to the window. Sure enough, he was there, frock coat billowing in the breeze, partially obscured by a dense bank of rhododendron. Buttery moonlight bled through the clouds, drenching him in a sick, dusty light, like something a child might sketch on a chalkboard after a nightmare, but so, so much worse. And there was Jake, walking straight for him. I moved, snatched my Zippo, and was about to hurtle over the windowsill when the memory of the alley burned hot. A lighter wouldn't cut it. I reversed course and pounded for the garage, threw on the light and searched desperately for the gas can. I found it beneath Dad's workbench among a swirl of dust motes and grabbed it along with a wad of paper towels, ran to the backyard, stopped cold. The backward man had knelt, his arms slung in reverse as if beckoning Jake in for a hug, elbows cutting impossible angles. I moved at that, burst across the grass in a nervous rush and uncapped the gas can. Several paper towels fluttered from my grip, but I managed to jam most of them in the top before sliding in front of Jake. 
I sparked the lighter and brought the flame down, ready to light it, when Jake thudded into my back. The gas can tumbled from my grip, and I watched in horror as it hit the turf, the flame guttering out instantly. The backward man shifted, as if noticing me for the first time, then slowly uncoiled into an impossibly black shadow, save for the flesh of his wrists. Something off about the skin there. It was moving, rippling with a familiar motion that took me a second to place. Boiling. His skin was boiling, blackening as he edged closer, tendrils of ash coiling off his fingers in little sparks. And that's what saved us. A single spark drifting off his wrist. It wavered there, hung like a firefly in the air for a terrible moment, before finally settling into the pool of gas glug-glugging toward the backward man's feet. The gas caught in a hot whoosh, the flames leaping up his legs in bright orange drifts. I'd like to say that he screamed, but the sound that came out was something else entirely. A piercing cry, like being thrust into the middle of an interstate pileup with a thousand brakes screeching at once. This endless, metallic squeal that dropped me to my knees and forced my hands to my ears. It didn't matter. The sound ricocheted through my skull like a stray bullet, went on for what felt like an eternity, but was probably only a few seconds, before the backward man was galloping away in a thick plume of smoke. When he vanished into the dogwoods, I pulled a hand from my ear and stared dumbly at the black slice of blood staining my palm. Jake said something behind me and I turned, flinching at the twin curtains of blood leaking from his ears, his hair thick with sweat, matted. He was blinking hard as if trying to focus, rubbing his eyes. Huh? I said. What are we doing out here? He looked at me like he used to when he was four, confused, but his face full of trust, wrinkled up like I could somehow solve this, like I had an answer for whatever the hell had just happened. I didn't. All I knew was, at that moment, I would do whatever it took to protect him to make sure the backward man never hurt him again. I moved my bed into Jake's room after that, slept next to the window and kept his door locked. Dad thought I was nuts, tried to get me to go back to my room, finally conceding after a few weeks with a weary, I guess it doesn't hurt anything. Jake, on the other hand, loved it. We played video games until midnight, talked more than we ever had. Sports, girls, what we wanted to be when we grew up. When he fell asleep, I stayed on watch until my eyelids turned to concrete, staring out the window and pinching myself awake. Never again. Colin, Jake said one night, his gaze on the ceiling, unfocused. What was she like? Mom? Yeah. I pictured her, a cascade of chestnut hair, her face smudged around the edges, the memory fading even now. 
I don't remember much, buddy, I said, but I can remember she loved me, and you, especially you. She was so excited to meet you. He was silent for a moment, mouth twisted to the side, wistful. Me too. A few years passed without incident. Jake grew up, fell into drama, acted in a few plays and took guitar lessons. Began painting, another piece of mom surfacing. Her paintings still hung in the living room, summer skies draped in lush purples, bright blue fields of cornflowers. My favorite hung near the front door, an oceanscape of mom and I, my hand in hers. Dad on the other side in a candy red raincoat with an arm slung over her shoulder. All of us looking out at the break. Better days. It hurt Dad, that painting. I sometimes caught him staring at it, limp beer in hand. No idea I was right there breaking with him. Besides that, things were pretty normal though not normal enough to blot out the memory of Jake slogging across the lawn like a back-alley drunk. Nothing could erase that from my mind. So I did the only thing I could. I prepared. And let me tell you, it's amazing what you can find on the dark web if you're dedicated enough. It's true what they say. It's a bad place full of bad shit. Drugs and stolen credit cards and extremist agendas. Weird porn. Crap that I wanted nothing to do with. I was only interested in one thing. Learning how to build a kick-ass Molotov cocktail. It took me a while to find the right recipe. A lot of experimenting. A lot of burns. One second-degree scorcher over my wrist before I settled on a highly illegal mix of carbon disulfide, white phosphorus, and sulfur, something that would ignite on contact with oxygen. I could cap the bottles that way. No messy ignition rag to deal with, no smell, and best of all, no way anyone could tell I was carrying a couple of firebombs in my backpack. Jake was a freshman by then, and part of me wanted to let up a bit and enjoy my life. I mean, I'd sacrificed college to watch over the kid, was working a crap job down at the Grease Monkey just to help Dad pay the bills. I wanted to convince myself that I'd earned it, that the backward man was gone for good, but I knew he wasn't, could feel it in my gut. And the image of Jake consumed by all that boiling flesh without me there to protect him scared the hell out of me. So I doubled down and smothered him instead, did whatever I could to be with him as much as possible, coached his soccer teams, took him to play practice and drove him anywhere he needed to go, doctor appointments, study dates, trips to friends' houses, all of that. And I still slept in his room, even when he bugged me not to, all the while on edge, waiting for the backward man to return. Waiting. Waiting. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. 
It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I slipped up in December. Jake had landed the lead in some play set during the Civil War. I vaguely remembered the irritation I felt when he told me, face beaming. I forced a smile to cover the cringe inside. It would mean more carding him around, more time I didn't have carved out of my schedule. Still, I knew it was good for the kid, so I congratulated him and told myself to buck up. I didn't realize how big of a deal the play was until opening night. It seemed the entire school was there in tightly packed rows. Dads dressed in plaid sport coats and brightly colored sweaters. Moms hissing under the breath threats at siblings squirming over the seats. The entire place buzzing with body heat. Even dad was there, sober and stretched out next to me in the first row, looking half interested. He clapped me on the back right before it started, looking happier than he had in a while. The first scene was a battle, the North versus the South, complete with a fog machine and the snap of cap-gun rifles, everything seeming to go off without a hitch. I even found myself enjoying it, the kids barking out their lines with gusto, the play director, Mr. Johnson, encouraging them with hearty pats on the back side stage his dress shirt half untucked and swaying. It wasn't until the third act that my stomach began to churn. At first, I thought it was food poisoning, something off about the slice of pizza I'd inhaled earlier, but I knew better the minute Jake took the stage. It was his big scene, the one he'd practiced in front of the mirror for months, the Gettysburg Address. He stood hunched, fake beard plastered to his chin, body stiff beneath his knock-off double-breasted suit. I could tell he was nervous by the way he rocked back on his heels, his hands knuckled tight over the podium. Then, with a sudden swell of confidence, he straightened and cleared his throat. Four score and seven years ago. I don't think I'd ever been as proud of him as I was at that moment. Same with Dad. He was beaming cheek to cheek, looking at Jake the way he used to look at me before Mom died. A younger, fresher version of him planted next to me. A few of the wrinkles washed away. That's when I saw the shadow. It was small at first, a slight alteration in the way the light hit the stage, muted in spots, hazy, but it grew 
devouring the floor inch by horrible inch, an oil slick spreading, but blacker, thicker. A top hat formed first, followed by a sharp set of clavicles, a spindly neck. My throat constricted and I reached for my backpack, clawed, empty air. No. I'd carried it like an oxygen tank, day in and day out for over a year, waiting for this moment, this exact moment, and like an idiot, had left it in the dressing room when I dropped off Jake. I bolted, shoved my way past a tangle of legs, and spun through the door. Go, go, go! Slamming into the dressing room, panicked, eyes hungry for that dark red fabric. By the time I made it back, Jake had deteriorated. Mr. Johnson was hissing lines at him, peppering an otherwise awkward silence. It is altogether fitting, altogether fitting. Jake had turned, was facing the backward man now, his head lolled to the side. The other kids watched him with creased brows, one a popular ponytailed sophomore doing her best to stifle a nervous shot of laughter. I could tell she didn't see the backward man. None of them did. He elongated, his top hat nearly brushing the ceiling now, and beckoned to Jake with those terrible, inverted arms. Jake gurgled something and wobbled off the podium, crashed past a cluster of prop horses and knocked them over. Something like steam lit the air, a dull simmer, and I clambered up onto the stage, flinging the first Molotov in a wild, looping throw that wheeled wide right. The bottle shattered in a searing burst of light. A ripple of confusion rolled through the audience, a muffled scream. Shit! I focused and hurled the second Molotov harder, thinking, do not miss, do not miss. And then everything happened at once. Jake reaching out for those horrible hands, the bottle bursting into a bright wall of flame that enveloped the curtains, then the backward man, then Jake. I was only vaguely aware of the hell breaking loose behind me, of the screams and toppled chairs and frantic surge for the exits, Dad shouting the entire time, Colin! Colin, what are you doing? It was all static as I lunged for Jake and grabbed his arm. It was limp through his sleeve, cold, his mouth unbuckled in a silent scream, all teeth. Then that shrill cry hit, that terrible metal-on-metal metal wail, and I was pulling, jerking back on Jake like a man possessed, heaving and yelling for him to let go, to please, God, please let go! He didn't. The backward man's grip was steel. A forest of tendons bunched across his fingers and they curled tighter, orange tongues of flame spreading from the creature's arm to Jake's. A thick grinding sensation pulled my gaze higher toward the backward man's head, which was turning, rotating in place like something from the exorcist. The eyes appeared first, then a familiar curl of hair, 
an open mouth screaming through a thin string beard, lips stretched wide. My world fell away. It was Jake. A funhouse mirror version of him, but him all the same. And so, so wrong. The cheeks were hollowed out and slung with paste-like ribbons of flesh, the eyes bulging, one rolling wildly in place. The other stared directly at me, a burning pupil swimming in a sea of yellow sclera. And its nose... Dear God, it had been eaten away, leaving behind two gaping holes in the place of nostrils. I realized then that it was crying, as was Jake, both of them howling as the flames chewed through their torsos. My hand fell away, and all I can remember is shaking, convulsing in place as the backward man's flesh congealed with Jake's, thinking, no, 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 as Jake seized into him bit by awful bit. It was this horrible combining, both of them jerking into the other, becoming one another, a melding of arms, legs melting together. I saw it then, what I should have seen all along, the top hats and frock coats billowing with smoke, the wool trousers, everything the same, their ankle boots their beards, even their postures both slumped slightly forward. They were the same, exactly the same. The flames expanded, bled over the floor and up my legs, the heat searing, a thousand nerve endings frying at once. I realized I was screaming too, and had been for some time, echoing the howls of my brother, of the backward man. Hands gripped my shoulders. Someone beat at my legs with a towel, waves of heat rolling over me. I extended an arm toward what was left of my baby brother, my eyes never leaving his as they merged with the backward man's. A pathetic moan was all that escaped my lips before I was drugged away. My legs aren't much to look at these days. I mean, they work and all, sort of. I have a pretty bad limp, but I avoid looking at mirrors whenever I pass. All that twisted, candle-wax flesh brings me howling right back to that day, and I don't need the reminder. I live it on repeat, the way Jake just dissolved into him, their flesh searing together, actually twining his and the backward man's, that glue-colored skin mixing with my brother's like a bad infection. It's enough to make you want to shoot yourself, and I would, if I could, but I can't. You see, I was committed not too long after that night, sentenced to twenty years in the psychiatric wing of King County Correctional, fifteen with good behavior. Maybe someday I'll make it to a halfway house, post up on the porch and chain-smoke my way through what's left of my life with the rest of the burnouts, 
nothing but dead eyes and scorched lungs, but even that would be too kind. Fifteen people were hospitalized that night, four students sent to the ICU with severe smoke inhalation. Two died. My brother, of course, and the girl I had spotted giggling at him. I can still see her honey-blonde hair glowing pink beneath the stage lights, can still picture the way she swallowed that laugh. Her parents were at my trial, their faces bunched in hate, fists balled hard in their laps. If eyes were daggers, I'd already be dead. Dad never came to my hearings, hasn't visited me once in the ten years since. He's never written, never called. If he did, I would tell him what I've told everyone else, that I was trying to protect Jake as I always had, to save him from the creature in the frock coat that took Mom. It landed me here, that story, planted me in this sweat yellow gown along with the rest of the droolers. No one else saw the backward man that night, not a single person. Still, it doesn't change the fact that it's true, every word of it. I know this because, despite the solitude, the thinly padded walls and pipes clinking away in the small, dark hours, I'm not lonely. Not in the least. Jake is here with me. He stands in the corner with his top hat crushed beneath the concrete ceiling, his gaze always on me, never blinking, never looking at anything else, only at me, those two black hole eyes looking like something punched through a wet sheet of paper, his skin a mess of shining pink flesh. Sometimes he tries to speak his jaw elongating unnaturally, those thin bone hands scraping his knees. But all that comes out is the shriek I know so well, that scraped metal cry that sends a chill racing down my spine every time I hear it. I know that cry will never end. It will drill through my skull and fray my mind bit by bit. And one day, not too far from now, when I can no longer stand it, it will whittle me down to nothing more than a charcoal imprint, everything fading away as if I were never really here at all. You've been listening to The Backward Man by Caleb Stevens. Author Caleb Stevens is a novelist living in Denver, Colorado, and his short stories have been published in Suspense Magazine, Hello Horror, Ink Stains, Horror Tales Podcast, Dark Tales, and Hinnom Magazine, for which he is the assistant editor. He is represented by Anne Collette of the Reese Literary Agency. You can learn more at www.calebstevensauthor.com. That's Stevens with a PH. And now, from author Warren Benedetto, I present 
from below. We will be safe there, the boy asks. The roar of the powerful outboard motor echoes through the flood-ravaged streets of Old Manhattan as I pilot the boat down the center of what used to be Fifth Avenue. Water laps at the facades of the submerged structures, spraying a fine mist into the cold night air. I glance down at the child. He's young, no older than ten, with straight black hair and dark brown skin. The way his bangs flop over his forehead reminds me of myself as a child. Of course, I lie. You'll love it. The boy's mother shoots me a nervous glance, then puts her arm around her son and whispers into his ear in a foreign tongue. The boy nods. He rests his head on her shoulder. She hugs him tighter and kisses the top of his salt-crusted hair. A gust of freezing wind whips between the buildings. All around, the remains of skyscrapers jut from the water like ancient monoliths, hollow paeans to long-dead gods, their once-towering heights clipped short by the rising tides. An empty flagpole protrudes from one of them, a spear in the heart of a dying giant. Smears of rust cascade down the stone from the corroded metal base like bloodstains from a mortal wound. I look up at our destination, a black glass facade looming in the distance. It's dark, except for a ring of light spilling from the top floor windows. The penthouse. Floor-to-ceiling shades in every window prevent people outside from seeing in and people inside from having to see out. Behind the shades, a pair of silhouettes move fluidly past the glass, separating, spinning, then coming back together again, arms intertwining, bodies swaying, dual shadows merging into a single, multi-limbed form. Christ... I think. Are they dancing? I can't remember the last time I saw anyone dancing. It seems almost sacrilegious after all that's happened. The floods, the droughts, the fires. Millions dead, millions more starving. And yet those bastards up there are dancing, as if everything's okay. As if all this is normal, as if it's just another day. Unbelievable, I mutter. A ghostly white glow briefly illuminates the boat as it passes a giant do not enter sign. The warnings are everywhere, cautioning people against entering the flooded city. The water is getting deeper. That's the first problem. A few months ago, it was a foot or two below the sign. Now, half the sign is gone. It won't be long before the whole city is underwater, penthouses and all. And then what? My hand unconsciously brushes the gun tucked into my belt. I've never needed to use it, but I carry it just in case. The rising tide isn't the only risk. There are looters, hijackers, junkies... But what truly worries me aren't the dangers above the water. It's the ones below. I've never seen the things, but I have heard about them. 
about what they do to anyone who strays too close to the water's edge. Nobody knows what they are or where they came from. There are plenty of reasonable theories, ranging from previously undiscovered ocean predators to mutant strains of new species to long-extinct dinosaurs thawed from the Arctic ice. Then there are the crackpot rumors. Escaped genetic experiments. Government bioweapons. Mermaids. Aliens. Zombies. I don't know what to think. Part of me wants to believe that the things don't exist at all, that they're just boogeymen that parents wield to warn their kids away from the water. But another part of me finds it hard to ignore the screams that echo through the city at night, or the blooms of blood and viscera that sometimes bubble up from the depths. A gruff voice breaks me out of my reverie. It's my business partner, Alex. He's standing with one foot perched on the bow of the boat, like George Washington crossing the Delaware River. Yo, Jeremy, slow it down! The beam from a flashlight strobes in my eyes. I wave it away. Relax, I'm on it. I kill the motor. Its dying rumble ricochets off the walls of the urban canyon and rolls into the distance. The only sound that remains is the soft slap of water against the hull and the occasional cough from one of the twenty refugees crowded into the overloaded transport. The faint strains of what sounds like a waltz filter down from the penthouse above. The boat bumps against the 46th floor window of the skyscraper with a squeal like the death throes of a dying machine. Moving quickly, Alex loops a heavy, mildew-blackened rope in through one broken window and out the next, lashing the boat to the wide steel beam that separates them. Then he turns and faces the passengers. Twenty hopeful faces look up at him expectantly. They're starving. Desperate. Scared. They'll believe anything. And they have. Alex clears his throat and projects his voice. All right, everyone, listen up, he says. I'm going to run inside to see if your rooms are ready. You're all paid up, right? Heads nod. Alex points at the boy who talked to me earlier. You too, little man? The boy looks up at his mother. She nods her approval, and he gives Alex a thumbs up. Great! Alex claps his hands together. Then I'll be right back. He grabs the rope ladder dangling against the side of the building, then smiles down at the faces below. You're gonna love it here. With that, he climbs up the ladder and disappears through a window a few feet above the water. Fucking asshole, I think. Why do you have to do that with the kid? What was the point? It was just cruel. Alex seemed to have a twisted need to prove that he was still an alpha male, still a captain of industry, still at the top of the food chain. In a way, he is. We both are. I've known Alex for years. We met as freshmen at Texas A&M University, joined the MBA program at Wharton together, traded commodities at the same investment bank, even dated some of the same girls. Alex was an asshole back then, too. 
I'm originally from Texas. I majored in geological engineering with plans to join the oil industry when I graduated. But then, a recruiter for a major investment bank convinced me that I could make way more money trading oil futures in the stock market than I could make drilling holes in the Texas desert. The recruiter was right. Alex grew up in Nebraska, spending most of his childhood on his family's cattle ranch. He too had heard the siren song of Wall Street calling after graduation, and he too ultimately fell back on what he knew best. For him, it was livestock. Instead of herding cows on a farm in Nebraska, he was trading cattle futures from an office tower in Manhattan. It didn't matter to him. Either way, the livestock ended up in the same place. The slaughterhouse, then the dinner table. The beef industry was a big machine, a meat grinder that ingested living things on one end and spat gushers of money out the other. Alex was all too happy to collect it. When the shit hit the fan, Wall Street was one of the first things to go. The economy collapsed. Commerce broke down. Supply chains disintegrated. Food became scarce for everyone but the wealthiest few, housing too. Soon, it was every man for himself. It was Alex who came up with the plan. To him, it was obvious what we needed to do to survive. It was just an extension of what he was doing before the world went to hell. It was the same machine, just smaller. And we'd have to operate both ends. Think of them like commodities, Alex had argued when he pitched the idea to me. Like livestock. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was insane. Livestock? They're people! Alex walked over to the window of our darkened apartment, his shoes squelching on the waterlogged carpet as he crossed. The rug was sodden and mildewed. Black mold climbed the furniture and walls. The smell of rot was nauseating. He looked out across the darkened cityscape. Like most of the city, except for the penthouses, our place had no electricity anymore. We were lucky enough that it was still above the water. It wouldn't be for long, though. The high tide was already sloshing against the bottom of our windows. This place is fucked, Alex said. He thumped the toe of his sneaker against the glass at the waterline. We need an agent, and agents cost money. Alex was right. There were only so many buildings still above the water, and more were being flooded every day. An agent would find us a new place, and would do the dirty work of evicting the current occupants. But that kind of service didn't come cheap. The higher the apartment, the higher the price. Plus, there was the cost of eviction and the resulting cleanup. If the occupants left peacefully, it wouldn't be too bad. But if they didn't, well they would have to be convinced. The agents would do what they had to do to clear the property, but it could get messy, and that was expensive. I joined Alex at the window and gazed out at the remains of the darkened skyscrapers. Their penthouse lights glowed like the tips of lit cigars. You think it's true what they're eating up there? I know it is. How? You remember Gary Benjamin? I nodded. 
Gary Benjamin had been the head chef at Prime Cut, one of the city's premier steakhouses. Alex and I used to wine and dine our Wall Street clients over fist-sized cuts of Gary's divinely marbled $300 Wagyu steak. We had gotten to know him over the years. He was a smart guy, talented, the best chef in the city if you believed the critics that ranked that kind of thing. He's a personal chef now, in that one. Alex pointed at the black glass skyscraper towering over the drowned remains of Fifth Avenue. And he's buying. I sit alone in the boat, waiting and listening. I've made the trip enough times to recognize the sounds of what's happening inside. It's always the same thing. First, there are murmurs of confusion and concern as the refugees begin to realize they've been lied to. Someone, usually a man, starts shouting in protest. There's a struggle, then gunshots. The screams follow. Sometimes there are more gunshots, sometimes not. It depends on how unruly things get. Eventually, the panic simmers down to a steady drone of quiet weeping and whispered prayers. The adults are shuttled up the dank stairwell to the 49th floor for immediate processing. The kids are herded into individual pens on the 48th, where they're held until they're needed. None of them really know what's in store for them. They're kept in the dark, literally and figuratively. I've never been inside the building. I don't have the stomach for it. Alex does, though. Somehow, he's unfazed by the whole thing. He goes up to the kitchen to chat with Gary Benjamin as Gary preps the penthouse's next meal, knowing full well where the cuts of meat on the chopping block came from. A flash of movement overhead catches my eye, and I look up. The boy from the boat, the one who spoke to me only minutes earlier, is in the window, pounding on the glass. His face is a mask of pure terror. Panicked, the boy looks over his shoulder, then down at me. Our eyes connect. The boy screams, his lips forming two words that I easily understand, even through the thick, soundproof glass. Help me. Before I can react, Alex appears behind the boy and grabs him by the arms. The kid struggles to break free, but Alex is too strong. He drags the boy, kicking and screaming, away from the window and into the darkness. A few minutes later, the rope ladder rattles against the side of the building as Alex climbs down. Sorry about that, Alex says as he lowers himself into the boat. Damn kids slipped away when we weren't looking. He wipes his hands on the back of his pants, then begins untying the rope that secures the boat to the building. I notice a spray of blood splattered across the front of Alex's yellow rain slicker. Crimson streaks that look like finger tracks are smeared down one of his sleeves. Good news, though, Alex continues as he coils the rope. He's beaming. We're in. I don't respond. I'm still staring at the bloodstains, my eyes unfocused. You hear what I said? Alex asks. 
They have a vacancy. He loops the coiled rope onto a rusted metal hook protruding from the side of the boat. Isn't that great? Yeah, I say quietly, groggily, as if waking from a deep slumber. Alex frowns. Hey, what's your problem? I look up at the window where I saw the kid calling for help. It's dark. I glance back at Alex. I'm done, I say. I stand up and press the outboard motor's electric starter. The engine sputters but doesn't catch. Done? Done what? I motion to the building. This. I press the starter again. Everything. The engine roars to life, spitting a cloud of pale gray exhaust into the air. Hang on, hang on! Alex shouts over the noise. Shut that shit off! I ignore Alex, revving the engine louder and piloting the boat away from the side of the building in a U-turn. Shut it off, I said! Alex shouts over the noise. He pushes past me, slams his hand down on the starter, and kills the engine. What the hell are you talking about? You're done! I look down at my shoes. I don't want to do it anymore. Alex glares at me for a moment, his arms crossed over his chest. The muscles in his jaw ripple as he clenches his teeth. Then he nods. His tone lightens. Okay. Okay? I lift my head, my eyebrows raised in surprise. Really? Sure, we'll just stop. And then, when our apartment floods and one of those things comes swimming through the door looking for its next meal, I'll make sure it knows where to find you. My eyes narrow. Fuck you. Don't you get it? Alex asks. We're this close to making it up there. He points to the penthouse. I snort derisively. They're not going to help us. They don't give a shit about us. We're just useful to them. Yeah, exactly. That gives us leverage. We can make a deal. A laugh bursts from my lips, echoing off the buildings towering around us. It's a hollow, joyless sound. They're dancing up there. So? So, you don't get to where they are by sharing. Hell, that's why we're in this shit show in the first place. I gesture to the water that's overtaken the city. They didn't know when to stop, when enough was enough, and now we're stuck in this mess that they created. But them? I look up at the penthouse. They're still dry. They have electricity, clean water, food. They're above it all, literally. Exactly, which is why we need to be up there too. But that's their whole scam. The American dream, right? If you just work for us hard enough, someday all this can be yours. It's bullshit. It was always bullshit. What, you're Karl Marx now? Christ, listen to you. You sound like a fucking communist. Look, do what you want, I sigh. But like I said, I'm done. I try to step around Alex and back to my position by the engine. 
Alex moves to block my way. His lips curl away from his teeth in a snarl. No, he growls. You're done when I say you're done. He moves forward until we're almost nose to nose. Got it? I plant a forearm in Alex's chest, pushing him away to create space between us. Back off, I warn. What are you gonna do? Alex shoves me. Huh? The blow unleashes something deep inside of me. Before I can stop myself, I thrust my head forward, crushing my forehead into Alex's face in a vicious headbutt. Alex grunts as blood erupts from his busted nose. He spins around and bends forward over the boat's railing, leaking bright tendrils of blood into the jewel-green waves. The hell, man! You broke my nose! As Alex tries to staunch the bleeding with his shirt, the water beside the boat begins roiling and foaming. A cluster of ghostly white blurs materialize in the oily darkness, like wisps of gauze dancing lazily just below the surface. Suddenly, a mottled grayish-white hand shoots out of the water. It clutches Alex's arm and yanks, causing his midsection to crash against the railing and knocking the wind out of his lungs. Another hand shoots from the water. Flaccid ribbons of flesh are strung between its bony fingers like party streamers. Its yellowed nails dig into the shoulder of Alex's jacket and pull him headfirst into the water. Alex's startled screams turn into muffled gurgling. His arms flail helplessly at the thing in the water. He tries to tear away the limbs gripping at him, but the rotting flesh sloughs off in his hands. Overcoming my initial shock, I lunge forward and grab Alex's belt, digging my heels into the bottom of the boat and leaning back, putting all of my weight into pulling Alex away from whatever is attacking him. I can feel the thing tugging hungrily at my friend, trying to draw him fully out of the boat and under the waves. My grip begins to slip. Veins in my neck and forehead bulge as I struggle to hang on. The muscles in my back and shoulders scream from the strain. The belt tears at my fingers. Then, suddenly, the things in the water let go. With the resistance gone, I topple backward, landing flat on my back with Alex's body on top of me. I roll to the side, gasping for breath, then push Alex away and struggle to my knees. I look down at my friend. His face is gone. All that's left is a shredded, red-black hole, just a masticated mess of flesh and bone. The remnants of his lower jaw hang toward his neck, his bottom teeth poking up through the torn flesh of his lips and gums like broken seashells in a rising tide of gore. Torrents of blood bubble up from his severed arteries and pool in the cavity where his mouth used to be. I recoil with revulsion, vomit spewing from my lips. Alex is making gurgling sounds, his legs and arms twitching weakly. Somehow, he's still alive. His head lolls toward me. Blood spills from his ruined face and swirls into the water around my boots. The mangled stump of his tongue pokes and wiggles obscenely over the entrance to his torn esophagus. 
he seems to be trying to say something. One of his arms lifts, reaching in my direction, fingers grasping blindly. They find my arm and tighten around it. My feet slip on the blood-slicked metal floor as I stumble backward from Alex's grip. I fall hard, my head cracking painfully into the edge of the bench behind me. The floor under me begins to tilt, sending a noxious mixture of water, blood, and vomit sloshing past my cheek. Just above my head, a rotting hand grips the railing. Another arm emerges from the depths and latches a hand onto the rail, further tipping the vessel. Then another arm emerges, and another. One of the arms is still clad in the moldering remnants of a long-sleeved shirt. It reaches for me. I kick at it, hearing the crunch of brittle bone and the squelch of rotting flesh as my boot connects with the outstretched appendage. One of the moldering creatures manages to pull itself over the railing, toppling into the boat with a splash. It's a woman. Or was, at one point. Clumps of long, braided hair dangle from the thing's skull like seaweed. A tangled necklace is entwined around its exposed vertebrae. Shreds of what appeared to be a McDonald's uniform cling to its torso, a name tag still pinned to the shirt. The realization of what I'm seeing washes over me. I never considered what happened to the millions of people who drowned in the city. The poor, the working class, the homeless. The ones who had been unable to escape the rapidly rising floodwaters, their waterlogged bodies bloating with gases and floating toward the surface, only to be forever trapped by the ceilings of whatever room and whatever building they were in when they died. I watch in numb horror as several once-human forms pull themselves out of the water, flopping like fish over the railing and into the boat. Their skin hangs like rags from their algae-blackened bones, catching on the rivets lining the railing and sliding off into doughy piles that remind me of sodden toilet paper spat from an overflowing sewer. Their flesh teems with worms, Barnacles crust their skulls. The low-tide smell of rot and decomposition fills my mouth and nose. Once in the boat, the things slither hungrily on their bellies toward Alex's dying body, pulling themselves forward with their arms like infants who haven't yet learned to crawl. Their legs drag behind them, flaccid, seemingly useless. I backpedal away from the things in front of me. Something grabs my shoulder, and I feel the icy wetness of necrotic flesh graze my neck. With a wild yelp, I jerk away, then spin to find more skeletal hands curling over the railing behind me. In the reflection of the black glass skyscraper, I can see a dozen or more of the things climbing up the side of the boat. More are surfacing from the water in all directions. I'm surrounded. I look up at the building. The rope ladder Alex had descended only minutes earlier is still dangling from the broken 47th floor window. I climb onto one of the boat's wooden benches and reach for the ladder. My fingers graze the bottom rung. The ladder swings away from me. 
I reach for it again as it swings back in my direction, but I miss. The ladder seems to be getting shorter, further away. There's no way I can reach it from where I'm standing. I look down, remembering the rope Alex used to lash the boat to the building. Maybe I can leverage that to snag the ladder. I grab the rope, uncoil some slack, then turn back to the building. The ladder is gone. In the 47th floor window just overhead, Gary Benjamin peers down at me. Gary! I plead. Help me! Gary doesn't respond. Instead, he steps back into the shadows, drawing the remaining length of the ladder up through the window. No! Gary, wait! I shout. The ladder! Please! I reach desperately for the retracting ladder as it disappears into the darkness, but it's too far gone. I turn around, searching desperately for another way to escape. The creatures are swarming the boat from all directions. They have completely covered Alex's body and are feasting on his remains, greedily tearing the flesh from his limbs with their teeth. Some plunge their bony hands into his body cavity, pulling out dripping handfuls of viscera and shoveling it into their disjointed maws. Others are crawling toward me, their teeth gnashing, their arms reaching. There's nowhere for me to go. I only have one option. My hand settles on the butt of my gun. It's an unconscious movement driven by pure instinct. I'd forgotten that I even had the thing. I draw it from my belt, aim at the advancing horde, and fire. The bullets pass cleanly through flesh and bone, doing nothing to slow the creature's approach. The things are almost upon me. I feel their hands close around my ankles, around my calves. They begin to pull at me, drawing me downward. With a faraway stare, I press the barrel of the gun under my chin, then look up at the sky. My eyes fall on the penthouse. Its lights cast a soft white halo around the skyscraper's top floor. The lazy strains of the waltz have been replaced by something more up-tempo. A swing. The silhouettes behind the shades twirl and spin, joining and separating and joining again, oblivious to the horror unfolding below. I pull the trigger. The gunshot reverberates off the building's algae-slicked facades as my lifeless body tumbles forward into the waiting jaws of the undead horde. In the penthouse, the silhouettes never miss a beat. They keep dancing, as if all this is normal, as if it's just another day, as if nothing has happened at all. You've just heard From Below by Warren Benedetto. Warren Benedetto writes short fiction about horrible people doing horrible things. He is a full member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association, 
and has published dozens of stories in publications such as Dark Matter Magazine and The Dread Machine, on podcasts such as the No Sleep Podcast, Tales to Terrify, The Creepy Podcast, and Scare You to Sleep, and in anthologies from Scare Street, Ghost Orchid Press, Erie River Publishing, and more. When he's not writing, he works as director of global product strategy at PlayStation, where he holds over 30 patents for various types of gaming technology. He is also the developer of Stay Focused, the world's most popular anti-procrastination app for writers. He built it while procrastinating. For more information, visit www.warrenbenedetto.com and follow at Warren Benedetto on Twitter. Well, my friends, that concludes our evening. I'm sure that your warm bed will feel extra comfortable after our good pal Jeremy was dragged into the watery depths. As you lay there, though, just keep an eye out for any strange, tall shadows lurking in the corners of your room. Thank you for joining us tonight, and I'll be back next week at the same time and same channel for more terrifying tales to chill your blood on these warm spring nights. Until then, listeners, stay spooky. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. As for me personally, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username VikingGuitar, and also on Instagram as VikingGuitarProductions. In particular, if you're looking for someone to provide voice work for your own project, or are in need of audio production of any sort, it would be wonderful to chat. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in.
You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Nikki McSorley and Eric Peabody. Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave us a kind comment. Lastly, don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all of your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.